This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford, a clinical psychologist, and I wanted to extend the walls of my practice to many of you. Maybe you're already in therapy and you're enjoying that kind of relationship, but you're interested in hearing another viewpoint, or maybe even, as I hear a lot of people do, bringing self work topics into your own session. Wanted to reach those of you who might be looking for answers. You've just been diagnosed with something, or you're having relationship issues, or just life issues that you're not sure what to do with. But also to a third group of you, those of you who are pretty darn skeptical about mental health treatment and think that really reaching out for it is weak or means you're fragile, just give self work a listen, and I think you might change your mind. Before we get to a very, very poignant interview, here's a quick message from Mag Breakthrough. If you don't want to accidentally take a laxative and have the worst day of your life, listen to this. If you're currently taking a magnesium supplement, chances are you're flushing it down the toilet, and I mean that literally. You see, the most common type of magnesium is actually used as a laxative. So if you're taking it, you're literally pooping and peeing it out. Kind of ironic, isn't it? The worst part about magnesium deficiency is how it affects almost every aspect of your health. Your metabolism suffers, you can't lose weight, your blood pressure goes up, and a whole lot more. And the worst part, as we've talked about, is your sleep suffers. So what's the solution? It's called Magnesium Breakthrough, and it's my favorite magnesium product that I continue to recommend. It's the only full-spectrum magnesium supplement with seven unique forms of magnesium that your body can actually absorb. And this month, they're including free bottles of their full line of digestive health products on select orders while supply lasts. That means you're getting free products to try that will support your digestive system. Now, this special offer is only available at magbreakthrough.com slash selfwork. That's magbreakthrough.com slash selfwork. And you've got to enter the code selfwork10 for 10% off any offer. So free product and 10% off. Try it. I'm so delighted to bring you this interview in recognition of Suicide Awareness Month here in September. Why? Erin Gallagher is going to tell you about the life and suicidal death of her son, Jay. His life was ended when the school had been alerted there were warning signs, big ones, very alarming ones. But because he didn't seem depressed and denied it when they interviewed him, they ignored these signs. They didn't dig any further than Jay saying, no, I'm not depressed. Erin has poured herself into learning more about why this school counselor didn't search further, why Jay was believed so readily. Our paths met because of my work in Perfectly Hidden Depression. Her discoveries that she'll share with you today are achingly true. Even those who've sought therapy don't report suicidal thoughts often. They just don't. Maybe they're afraid. They fear stigma. They fear what might happen. Maybe their own denial is very active, but it's being challenged day in and day out by intrusive thoughts of dying or taking their own life that can invade even the most perfect seeming of lives. If you've listened to self-work, you know I am passionate about this topic. But today, please listen and listen with care. Take care of yourself. I am honored to be Erin's friend, and I greatly respect what she and her husband have done and are doing about Jay's death and how it occurred and what we can learn from it. This is what Erin says about herself. Erin is proud to be a part of the This Is My Brave team as Interim Executive Director. Following the suicide of her son, Jay, in 2016, she and her husband became passionate mental health advocates and have worked tirelessly to influence policy on appropriate responses, particularly in the public schools, to suicide warning signs. She enjoys working with This Is My Brave volunteers toward ending the stigma associated with mental health and substance abuse disorders in honor of Jay. When Erin is not working, she enjoys spending time at her alma mater, James Madison University, visiting her oldest daughter, Lindsay, who is currently a senior majoring in nursing, and she also loves logging hours with her husband, Tim, while watching fast-pitched softball played by her youngest, who is now a freshman at Mount St. Mary's University in Emmitsboro, 
Maryland. She's got a full family life. And I so appreciate her taking the time away from This Is My Brave. And by the way, we're going to feature This Is My Brave a little later and her family to talk with us on self-work. There's one more sponsor that wants your attention before we go on, and it's our newest sponsor, Ozark Mountain Medicine's CBD products. I've used them for over three years and hope that they can help whatever chronic pain or discomfort you might have. I know they have helped me every week. Diagnosed with degenerative disc in my back when I was in my 20s, I've long been a seeker of alternative ways to help reduce inflammation, and I can't believe that the best product I've ever found is produced here in Northwest Arkansas. Ozark Mountain Medicine, located on a small boutique farm in the Ozark Mountains under the careful watch of CBD guru Bill Morgan, is a grassroots operation which produces some of the highest quality CBD available on the market. Unlike marijuana, which contains THC, which is what makes it mood-altering, CBD isn't the same and is legal in all states. Ozark Mountain Medicine's products contain at least 16 varieties of hemp, where other CBD products may use only one. Think of it as a healing gumbo for your joint and muscle aches, and you've got the picture. What's most important to me and to you is that it works. I've been told at least three times in my life that I needed to be reassessed for back surgery, and three times I've kept walking, getting massages, and for the last three years, steadfastly using this product. You can take it orally in tincture form, or calming salves are available, which is what I prefer. The other benefits of taking it include immune support, increased relaxation, reduced anxiety, and improved sleep. So here's their fabulous offer for self-work listeners. All you have to do is use this promo link, ozarkmountainmedicine.com slash self-work, and you'll receive 10% off your order. I never suggest a product to you that I haven't used myself, and I reap this one's benefits each and every day. That code again is ozarkmountainmedicine.com slash self-work. Sometimes the best solutions are right under your nose. So try a bit of Ozark Mountain Medicine CBD and see for yourself. Now I want to introduce to you Aaron Gallagher. I wanted you on self-work for many reasons. And um, one of them, of course, is your son Jay's death and how it happened and what you learned from it. So I know you're several years down the road, but at the same time, I'm sure it stays incredibly fresh. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. I mean, it's it's a sad story. And I'll, I'll cry for a little bit in the beginning, but I can rally. Um, uh, so Jay was um, my oldest son, child, my only son. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, <clears throat> incredibly smart, funny, really funny, um, just bright, um, you know, uh, observant, you know, um, he just really unique personality. Um, he, he was growing into such a great young man with hopes and dreams, obviously. Um, Mm -hmm. he was a senior in high school, you know, he was active in school. He was engaged in the classroom he, um, you know, was on the varsity golf team. He played on the club hockey team. He was, you know, in the engineering club. Um, Everything that would indicate to you that he loved his life, that he loved where he was going with it, that he was creating something that he was participating fully in and yeah. lost family, very vital part of your family and his friends. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I wouldn't I would say that. Now, looking back, I can see things, and and this is where some of your insight has been helpful. He did live a perfectionist lifestyle, you know, and I do. I mean, I have, and obviously, things have changed a lot since since his death, but I grew up, you know, and my family, it's kind of like perfectionism is the standard, and I've always said... You know, it's not like I'm perfect, right? Um, but I hold perfection as the standard, and then I'm disappointed when I don't hit it, which is 
you know, obviously I'm human, so I never hit perfectionism. So I just walk around disappointed a lot. Right. So I've tried to shake that obviously in recent years. And I see the, the, the fault in that line of thinking, especially now, but for Jay, he really, um, he had that same standard for himself. So, you know, for example, when he was applying for college, um, in the beginning of his senior year, he wanted to be uh, in an engineering program. And so he, stretched himself, you know, he did the thing that they tell you to do, you know, aim for your stretch school that go go for the school, then the second option would be the one that you have a pretty good chance of getting into. And then explore some creative options that um, you definitely like are your, you know, the safety school thing, right? I mean, I don't want to say that, but, um, you know, there's no guarantees these days about college, right? So, so he'd done that. He, he, uh, pushed himself to apply to Purdue University, and we're in Virginia, so that was a you know kind of oh, a yeah. deal. Mm-hmm. Um, he was applying at Virginia Tech, and and then we were exploring some other options, um, f- like up and coming engineering programs. You know that that he I think would be a, a strong candidate for, and that those schools would have loved to have had them him there. So one thing he said when he was applying to Purdue is, um, I don't I don't think that they that they'd take a kid like me. And I said, well, you know, I mean, you got to put yourself out there. I mean, maybe they won't, but uh, you know, I mean, I think you're extremely bright. You're thoughtful. You bring a lot to the table. Mm -hmm. And I I think you're, you're underestimating yourself. Mm -hmm. So he applied. um, And then, you know, uh, they have, they, he got that, that response back. He didn't have to like wait super long. So I don't know how they do their admission there, but he got back within a, like six weeks an acceptance into the into the Purdue engineering program. Wow! And um and then his comment was, "Oh, I guess they'll just take anybody there." And I was like, "Hey, you know, you can't have it both ways. You can't think I'm not good enough and then go, oh well, I guess they'll just let anybody into this program.' You know, so that it was that kind of thinking that, that always that self doubt. Um, but I think it was based in 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 perfectionism. So we would coach him a lot on that, you know, really try to highlight for him, you know, that's, that's, you can't think like that, you know, um, obviously it was plaguing him in a far greater way than we ever could have imagined, but we never knew that that was, um, a risk factor, you know, that never, um, elevated in our eyes to something that could be dangerous for him. That never really, um, crossed our minds you know so that kind of pressure or that kind of right do you feel like he he felt as if he would be sort of he'd be an imposter there that he'd be found out maybe maybe i you know i i unfortunately we didn't have the opportunity to explore this with him so i i can only guess what his answers would be just knowing what i know of him but in any case you know it was early in 2016 um in february actually that um you know he took his own life um so which was a complete shock to us i mean we just had no idea um no thought whatsoever that this is where he was um emotionally no one did except for the one friend you told me about let me let me share a little of the backstory with work listeners about how we came to know one another i was at the time researching for my book on perfectly hidden depression and i had simultaneously didn't have anything to do with that reached out with jennifer marshall to jennifer marshall who was the co-founder of this is my brave but then she contacted me i don't know sometime after that and told me about you and i read your blog and about Jay, and I reached out to you, I think, or vice versa, I'm not sure which, and then we began talking, and mm-hmm. I have, you know, there are some there's some factors about Jay's death, and I, at the time, back in 2016, you couldn't go into it much because of litigation. Mm-hmm. Can right. you go into that any more than you did before, or? Yeah, I mean, I can tell you what, as much as I've been able to ascertain, you know, it's, I don't know that I'll ever know the complete story, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Um, but Jay certainly was um, actually um, giving off signs that he was in distress, just not outwardly to us. You know, he had his happy face on when he was in our family and, and with us. Um, but he was sharing um, with a friend um on phone calls and through text that he was struggling and that he 
and maybe actually more than one friend, um, but one friend in particular who started to become very alarmed by the things that he was saying. And so in January, um, she felt like she needed to tell someone that he seemed like he was getting worse. And it, it felt to her like it was mounting. Sorry. That's all right. And I think it's important to say, as I've found with a lot of these people who are struggling with this, she wasn't a local friend. No. She wasn't no. someone who knew you. Right. She wasn't. Right. She, it was almost like she was safe to talk to. Yes. Because yeah. she wasn't in his local or in his everyday life. Right. Right. So she didn't have the opportunity to see us as a family. So, you know, he did paint a picture to her that he was having trouble with us. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, certainly, obviously, you know, the thing about an 18 year old, um, you know, developmentally, they kind of have to start to, um, you know, I think it's normal for them to want to, they know they're, they're going to be Leaving to pull away, to find right? fault. Yeah. Right. So they kind of have to create a, a scenario where like tensions are mounting and this is a horrible place to live. I got to get out of this place. Right. So maybe that's what he was doing. Um, I'm not sure. We didn't feel that tension. We weren't having arguments in our house. Um, you know, we weren't having knockdown, drag out, blowouts um, where he would leave the house storming, you know, storm out of the house. Or, you know, there was nothing like that. I mean, simmering beneath, I guess. Um, but we just, you know, we didn't have that kind of um, culture in our home. So, so maybe we were relying too much on like, everything's fine. And maybe that was a little toxic. I, you know, that's something we have to probably think about and examine. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, this friend had definitely observed and was becoming concerned. And so she wanted to let somebody know um, somebody, you know, the trusted adult thing, exactly. um, which, so I, it, and I, we have thanked her time and time again. I know she's been tortured by this because she did do the right thing. She reached out. She actually went to the extent of like looking through his social media and trying to figure out like what school he went to and then identifying that school and then going through the trouble of trying to figure out who his school counselor would be based on the assignments that were listed on the website, you know, alphabetically. Wow. She figured out who his counselor was and reached out to that uh, counselor and said, I have a report I want to make about Jay Gallagher. And um, they had a brief exchange um, she, I think, made herself very clear. It was something to the effect of, um, well, she said, I want to make a report. And he came back and said, well, tell me what, what you've got. Like, tell me what this is about. And she said, well, he's been talking of self-harm and suicide. And it, it was, it's been going on for a while, but last night was especially concerning. And so, you know, I think you can see from her email that, it was, uh, it, it articulated very clearly mounting um, distress yes. and anguish. Um, so he said, all right, I'll look into it. And so that was an after hours email that came to him about 6 p.m. on a Monday night. Uh, he eventually called Jay into his office on Tuesday afternoon. So I feel like he, he broke protocol there the school system had a strong gold standard suicide prevention policy in place. It was, this is not an issue of uh, shoot. Now we know something and we better put something in place that will protect other students. They had an excellent suicide prevention policy in place and all counselors had been trained in that, in that policy. He Followed it very loosely, missed some significant steps. And one of the steps that they uh, recommended in in the policy is that if somebody were to, a third party were to offer a warning about a student and their um, state of mind, that the person receiving that warning should go and gather as much information from that person as possible. Right. Um, Not just a loose, like, yeah, tell me what tell you me about it. Yeah, three sentences later, sure, I'll check in with him. He didn't do that. So he didn't have what we eventually got our hands on, 
which was like 80 pages of text. She was very quick and could easily access. And it does paint a very distressing picture. If he'd asked for that, he would have seen right away that this is not, this wasn't a joke. This wasn't some kid saying something. Over-dramatizing. Right? Something. Mm-hmm. He would have seen it all. It was all there. Oh, he didn't ask for yeah. it. Wow. He didn't ask for it. So it would have been a simple ask. And she, I'm just, you know, she had it available just like that. But she felt like she'd done her due diligence. And he said he'd go talk to Jay about it. Mm. And he did eventually call him into his office on Tuesday afternoon, asked him, Hey, you know, somebody's made this report. Jay got angry and denied it. Um, and wanted to know who'd made the report, who said such a thing about him. And I think that was a defensive, like last ditch effort to keep up the, the facade and not have to say this thing out loud that he was terrified to talk about. I, in her message, she said he wants help, but he doesn't know how to ask for it. Exactly. She, those are her words. Right. And he, you know, there was the chance. That was the moment. And uh, he denied it. And I think that that confirmed this bias that this counselor had. There's no chance it's Jay. No way that Jay would be suicidal. It doesn't make any sense. And so as soon as he said, I'm not, he was like, great. I knew it. Sent him back to class. And that's where it ended. Not ended. You know, what has happened with the school district at this point? I'm sorry. What has happened in, in trying for them to, you know, have they ever taken ownership of, of the responsibility for that? Never? No. Jay died early February, so it probably wasn't until March that we got a letter from this this woman, this young woman, who said something to the effect of, I was the one who who alerted the counselor. And that made us think, like, what what is, what is she talking about? And um, so we had, we asked somebody to reach out to her and, and find out what she could have been referring to. But in that interim period, we had gone to the school and said, like, is there anything, was there like a failing grade that was coming through or had anybody seen anything? And the resounding response was there, there were no signs. There were no signs. So if she hadn't contacted you and let you know that she was the alert mm-hmm. that they received, that they would have just denied everything. Oh my gosh, that is, that is appalling. It's appalling. It, it is. It's horrifying really. Um, and so we asked that the principal, you know, when we learned of this, we said, we think that there's something more to the story and we think you should go take a look. Mm-hmm. And um, she came back and said, I've, I've asked, I've asked everybody, don't have any further information. And then we were kind of at a loss. Like, what do we do now? Like, if we can't, if we can't get the truth from a, like an ordinary request for an inquiry um, and we know what the truth is, where do we go next? So we did contact an attorney just to say like, what next steps do we have at our, at our disposal? Well, I want you to hear me say quickly as well as the, as the audience who's listening, I can't tell you how many people since I've begun writing about this. And certainly since the book came out that have contacted me with similar stories about Uh, a child. I hate it. That's horrible. And, you know, it, suicide leaves you with so many questions anyway. Yeah. yeah. And then a suicide where you think, what did I not see? I mean, what it, it, it the feelings are so complicated. I mean, I don't even know the word to use. It really actually like it pushed me to system overload. I mean, I was on the brink of imploding, you know. I'm not surprised. So many things that you run through your head over and over and over again. I mean, I walked myself through to the morning that this was revealed to us. I walked myself through like desperately trying to like reshape history. You know, it's like a, I don't know um, if I could just 
What's the domino I could pick up and yes. none of this would happen? Mm-hmm. And if I could just, I, that was the loop that ran in my head. Like, how can I change this outcome? Like, how can I fix it so this never happened? And, you know, obviously there was a moment where I just, I, you know, I had to force myself to stop and really surrender to the reality that and if there was something I could do, it was left undone and we just had to do what we could mm-hmm. <laughs> obviously to um, make sure our family was okay but also we wanted to make sure that if our if the story that you know had become clear to us could be shared and um obviously it's a grieving mother's it's such a almost a trope and i you know but it you know if i could help one person right if i could prevent and another family from going through something like this if i could forget the family if i could prevent another young person from uh suffering in silence to the point of death man, I mean, that's what I needed to do. Like, that is what I um, was committed to doing. Like, I don't want any other 18-year-old man or woman or 12-year-old child. I mean, can you imagine that the numbers that we see now and the statistics that we know to be true, that the second leading cause of death for children ages 10 and above to up to like 24 a 10-year-old is the second leading cause of death is suicide. Can you imagine a 10-year-old sitting in anguish and terror and finally coming to the, to the decision that this is the only option they have? I, mean, I it, If talking about it can make sure that we can stop 10-year-olds from suffering, 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 80-year-olds from suffering, like, let's do it. We're going to talk about it, you know? when it's by suicide and yeah. and when it has the other component or the total perplexing facet of it, it wasn't obvious there was no change the magnitude of what was going on with that child was was silent um at least to the people that could do something about it so you know, I feel about talking with you like I felt about the parents who let their – Kate Fagan did a book, What Made Maddie Run, that came out back in 16 or 17. And it was about this college athlete, track athlete at Penn – I think Penn State or UPenn. Yes. Pennsylvania yeah. people would be mad at me for not knowing the difference. I know. <laughs> I think it was UPenn, actually, but I, I because I saw something on your Instagram. Cause did you recently interview – I've um, talked a lot about it. Okay, so yeah. I would love to interview anyone. But, you know, I feel the same way because there's this sense of, you know, we all pray that we would find out or discover something either medically wrong with our child that would end their life or psychically or emotionally wrong or, you know, but that doesn't happen all the time. You know, you could hide and say, this is too complicated. I'm, I'm afraid of being judged. I'm afraid Jay will be judged. I'm, yeah. you know, and so, and you're, you're not, you're just walking in your own courage. And I so appreciate that and, and value it and respect the hell out of it, actually. Thank you. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously I, I you know, when we started the inquiry um, with the school, which eventually, you know, uh, grew into a full on lawsuit, um, which has since, been um resolved i mean maybe not (laughs) the way i would have seen it resolved but it has um it's been put to rest but you know i really just wanted to understand i really just needed to know like how could someone who's in the position of protecting students make the decision in this case not to take further action like what would why, why, what, what circumstances were present that made him feel like "Mm, this is not one that I need to really pursue. Uh, I just really needed to understand the thought process. So um, I thought the inquiry would take us there. It it didn't, it gave me some insight, um, maybe because I heard, um, you know, 
uh, we post questions and answers were given. And so were they the complete um, internal dialogue of this person? No. So I had to kind of imagine what that could be. So I went on a little journey to do research. You know, obviously I started in my blog post learning about um, your, what you've, the term that you've coined um, perfectly hidden depression. That was very helpful for me to understand uh, that this is something that um, people face, you know, that it, it wasn't a one-off with Jay, um, but that this is a very common reaction to, unfortunately, to depression, that it's not always worn on someone's sleeve. It's not always outward in terms of uh, belligerence or drug abuse or um, or hiding and staying in, in bed and unable to get up. It's not always about a, you know, a, a breakdown in self-care and um, hygiene, you know, all of those things that we're told are the telltale signs of a suicidal person. And Jay had none of that. So, you, you know, reading your work um, and what you'd written at the time about it was very helpful to me um, to know to understand what that could look like. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I went on to just kind of try to understand um, you know, in an interaction with a with a person, you know, if you're in a position to offer help to somebody who is suicidal, um, like a counselor and a student or a therapist and a patient, how does that go down? Like, does that always, is it always just like, I ask you if you're suicidal and if you are, you say yes. Well, it turns out that's not always true. And so there are um, studies out there and one in particular from um, Columbia University where they, they interviewed 547 psychotherapy patients and asked them, you know, like, How's it going in therapy? Like, are you always answering truthfully? And the answer is no, they are not. They're not even in therapy. So this is, they've signed on to be in therapy and they are asked about suicidal ideation. And and that is one of the top things that people lie about in therapy. So, um, so that kind of, you know, when I'm thinking about, a suicide prevention protocol that's put together by a school um, and they encourage these, the trusted adult, whether it's a counselor or a teacher, um, a school administrator to ask the question point blank, are you thinking of suicide? And the, the, the wisdom is that if they are, they'll say yes. But actually the study reveals that they may in fact say no. And it's, likely that they will. So um, if they say no, is it an automatic no, they're not suicidal? Or is it a no, uh, I'm too afraid to say that I am right now? Right. Of course, the immediate response, especially if the therapist is somewhat defensive, (laughs) is to say, well, how am I supposed to know something if it's not told to me? And my answer to that is, that you you can't obviously you none of us are mind readers however if you're aware that depression can look very different and so you you have expanded your definition of what uh depressive symptoms or at least suicidal possibilities you know are there it's you know a very simple way of saying it this is an oversimplification is the question is not always do you feel hopeless is if you felt hopeless, do you think you would tell your therapist? Yeah, that's the other thing. And I, you know, I saw somebody else who said um, that, that if somebody says no in a, in that line of questioning, they don't leave it at that and just move on to the next question. They, they actually start to paint a picture for the patient and say, you know, I mean, when I look at the things that you're facing right now in your life, I mean, you have a lot on your plate. And so let's just say Jay's scenario, you know, you're, you have the stress of applying to college and trying to continue to uphold your grades as a senior and thinking about transitioning out of your family home into this new environment. Other people I've seen in my practice who've had that much on their plate, that much stress on their plate, have told me that that is stressful. It makes them feel depressed. And some have said that 
they are thinking of of harming themselves or they have said that they it feels like too much and they want to to find a way out sure so i i like that because it normalizes it somewhat. it normalizes say this other people who are facing things very similar to this have told me that it's too much they can't handle it so if that's and then then they the person suggested you could leave the door open with the patient then and say if that is you if you ever get to that point you you know you can talk about it with me i'm the person that we that you can talk about this through with i'm the safe place where you can have this conversation so um you know and then maybe even putting the question back has has this ever felt like too much to you and then work your way up to that that question i mean exactly i feel like that's a really it, it normalizes it humanizes the experience it lets the person know that it actually people who feel mounting tension um it causes anguish and pain and when that pain mounts to a point the, the desire isn't of course to end their life but to end that pain and that anguish get away from that situation in some way you know so many people when they come to therapy they think if they're going to talk about wanting to hurt themselves that the therapist is going to pick up the phone and call the police yeah that's (laughs) what they said in that columbia study they said why did you withhold and they said i didn't want to be like immediately hospitalized exactly and and that's not the case at all right people don't understand that and especially you know Younger people who don't have a lot of understanding of even what therapy can be or what it certainly can help a person by being that safe place. And if someone is determined enough to kill themselves, they will. However, to have the conversation as openly and as transparently and as carefully, like you said, where you say, well, this would not be an odd thing for you to feel this way. There would be Mm -hmm. plenty of people who, given the circumstance that you are facing in your life, that you might feel this way so that they feel like there's some sort of support and understanding rather than judgment. Right, right, yeah. Or immediate action. Right, yeah, and then there's a, a path well, I, you, you know, the, I don't know the steps, <laughs> but you know, the steps and mm-hmm. um, yeah. So, yeah, so that, that I feel like would be, would be so helpful, but that was, that is not a conversation I think that that can be done. I mean, I know, no, no uh, shade to school counselors, but they have a lot on their plate that really needed to be, I think, handed off to a mental health professional. I agree with you. Um, so the best way to have done that would have been to make a phone call home so that we could and have, to involve y'all. Yeah, yeah. exactly. I don't so, but in the in the course of my research then, of course, you know, I, I learned about the study at, at uh, Columbia and that answered one part of the question. Um, but the other part of the question is, um, you know, he had in his hand information that I think was articulated very well. He wants help. This is the friend. He wants help, but he doesn't know how to ask for it. And he's been talking about it a lot, but last night was most alarming. I mean, that's, I think, more information that you would need to to be nuanced rather than just say, hey, do you feel this way? Yeah. Yeah. Um. So even still, why did he accept Jay's answer that, no, I'm not suicidal? Why why was he willing to accept that? I mean, now we know why Jay denied it in that moment. um, But why was the counselor willing to accept that? So I continued to do some research and I found um, some the work of um, Dr. Timothy Levine at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. And he's done a lot of work on um, people's perception of whether the person they're talking to is speaking the truth. And we, and this was all uh, introduced to me, by the way, through, um, I have it right here, Talking to Strangers from Mark Malcolm Gladwell. Yes. This is where I was reading this. And this is where Dr. Levine's work was um, was highlighted. And I, pretty much the whole book of that Malcolm Gladwell is talking about is that we're not 
as amazing at reading other people as we think we are. You know, <laughs> we put, we give ourselves a lot of credit. Like, Ooh, we are so, uh, I'll look him in the eye and then I'll know if he's telling the truth. Right. And so, um, turns out, uh, we, that we all kind of function uh, under a truth bias where we assume that in, in the absence of any overwhelmingly compelling information, otherwise, um, we assume that what people are saying to us when they look us in the eye is true. So that's our, the truth bias that we carry that if a person looks us in the eye and says something, we assume it to be true. But Dr. Levine goes one step further and says like he actually in his studies would uh, set up scenarios where things got more and more ridiculous (laughs) that the person, the evidence was overwhelmingly, you know, contradicting what the person themselves was saying exactly and um the people on the other side still believed what the person was saying even in the face of all of this contradictory um, evidence evidence yeah and that's the definition really of his truth default theory Mm -hmm. that even in the face of overwhelming evidence we rely heavily on that truth bias Mm-hmm. And that's all, of course, happening behind the scenes. You know, this is like yeah. almost subconscious. And our conscious mind thinks like, I'm going to look him in the eye. He's going to tell me and I'm going to know whether he's lying or not. And um, in fact, we just, we're not good at it. And uh, that's what his study really revealed. And so that helped me to see, I mean, not to p- get give the counselor a big pass, Um because he was trained in a protocol that he completely disregarded. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly what I really wanted to see come out of this is um, I really wanted the school system to know, like to un- to do an investigation, to understand how something like this could happen so that they could make sure that they tweak their training to prevent another tragedy like this. You know, like I have a friend who does, um, she's an attorney and in Pennsylvania, and she does um, a lot of work with um, domestic, did do a lot of work in domestic violence um, and um, women's, like she helped um, as an attorney serve women who were in domestic violence situations and get them protective orders, help them um, get through those situations, keep their kids and themselves safe. So in her area, when they lose a woman in that area to domestic violence, she said it's very standard for them to uh, kind of go, everybody who's involved in protecting the community, police officers, social workers, doctors, um, attorneys. Anybody who's involved in that process. They go into like this war room and it's really like a, like a vault where like, you know, anything that is revealed in that space is not ever going to be held against anyone. But the point is that they put everything they knew about this woman on the table and um, try to figure out where the breakdown was you know, could we have done better at responding to that 911 call we got? Or should we have whatever, X, Y, or Z, right? And then even if the woman wasn't on their radar, they're still in that war room and they put all the information and they say, we didn't have her in our, we didn't know that this is somebody who is dealing with, uh, was dealing with a domestic, a, 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 an abusive mm-hmm. husband or partner. Why didn't we know about her? I mean, they go to that degree, right? So I was looking for that. I really wanted this school system to kind of put it all for the sake of the safety of every other student in that school system. Mm-hmm. I wanted them to go into a war room and put everything they could possibly have known about this situation on the table and then come out of that with lessons learned that they could apply to their policy that would make it so that no other student would ever have a situation like this again. And I think, Aaron, from what I know about it, and I think you would agree with this, they were so scared of being found at fault. I guess. You know, I don't know. Stayed away from all that. And it sounds like what your friend's describing is a process where no one's looking for fault. Everyone's saying, 
what did we as a system miss? Right. What were the signs? And if, if, if she weren't on our radar, why not? If she was on our radar, what happened with that? I mean, it was just sort of a, a blow by blow kind of, um, assessment, uh, of not, of, of responsibility and of caring, but not of judgment and fault. Right. And that, that doesn't do anybody any good. I mean, right. you know, young woman is dead. So, um, I, I I so agree with you that we, I mean, you know, um, to try to take this kind of tragedy and learn from it and then use what you've learned. And I can hear through the, you know, through your tears that it's so devastating to you that that did not happen necessarily with this particular school system, at least to to an extent that you know about it or that was made public. Yeah, I mean, maybe behind the scenes, sure. I mean, I have heard from teachers uh, that I know that are still in the system that um, that they are that they see um, a difference in the way that um, in what they observe as a response to other threats. Um, But I think it would have meant obviously it would have meant a lot to know that my son your son's death did not go you know it it, it had a purpose it had a sense of being a part of a change mm-hmm. well but i but i think it is and i'm i i you know interviews like this and i'm sure you've given others i know you've spoken uh, how much of this is you're you're also interim executive director right yeah. now of this is my brave and yeah. How what kind of healing or what kind of form have you used? This is my brave, and maybe you ought to talk a little bit about what this is my brave is. Suicide is a, a tricky t- topic, but first of all, to know that talking about suicide doesn't put the idea of suicide in anybody's mind. Um, so, but talking about mental illness and the possibility that it could emerge, it could come up in your life, and so to think about mental illness the way that you would talk about health, you know, like parents tell their children all the time, like, if you have a bellyache, make sure you tell mommy, or uh, if you ever see a rash on your body, you know, you have to tell mommy, right? Um, but if you're ever feeling down, and um, you don't look forward to doing the things that you've, you know, you normally love to do, right? Um, you should tell mommy about that. Like, you should tell us, tell your parents that, oh, wow, I'm just not enjoying the things that I used to. And of course, a seven-year-old is going to say that different than a 12-year-old or a 15-year-old. But to kind of paint a picture that, you know, this is, we know you love playing with your friends after school. And if you ever feel like, I don't want to do that, I'm too, I don't want to go out with and, and play after school with my friends or I have this knot in my tummy that um, I can't figure out why I don't have a test coming up. I, you know, but it's just there all the time. Like these are things that you you should ask your kids about, and they should be f- telling you about, you know. And so, but make those conversations normal, so that if an, a condition does start to emerge, they're comfortable t- coming to you to talk about it, and you're comfortable with the idea that it could be happening in your child's life. Right. Maybe I didn't say that as well as I could have, but I just feel like. Well, to try to evaluate your own sense of stigma, you know, one of the things that yeah. I say to people is, is that if you've talked in an age appropriate way to your own children about the vulnerabilities that maybe your mother faced or you faced or your sister or brother faced, or, you know, that, gosh, your Uncle Adam has anxiety, mom has anxiety, you know, I get really nervous about things, and your grandfather, I mean, if you just talk about it openly and say, well, what's anxiety? Well, that's when you feel this, you know, and you describe it just like you would, how do you know if you have the flu? Right. (laughs) You know, and so you, again, will use the word normalize it for them, but you give them some language, and then the fact that you have talked about it means they're much more likely to come to you when they feel that but yeah and it's not guaranteed but hopefully they would yeah and i also think that um i like the advice of staying curious so um i you know i I think a mistake that i might have made is if somebody and i'm not saying like it's a mistake that i think i just i shut down conversations because i assumed uh, that i knew what they were saying you know and so i there have been times when um i don't know 
um, I can't think of a good example, but if somebody were to, you know, if your child were to say, it's just too hard. Okay. Well, what's hard? Like, I know what, what hard means. And I know, you know, what, what does it mean to you? Like, what is hard? Help me understand, like, keep asking more questions until you drill down into the thing. Mm-hmm. And maybe it turns out to be nothing, but um, I certainly want one to say, no, you can do hard things. So go get them. You know, <laughs> like, right. well, tell me what's hard. You know, t- what is it? What's another word that you would use besides hard? Like, can you say it in a different way? And like, to really get a picture of what this thing is that they're describing um, and not what you ev- evoke in your mind, but what, what, how it's playing out in theirs. Yeah. That's what I think. Um, and just staying curious, right? Like uh, I'm not going to jump to any conclusion about what hard is. You tell me like what's going on and then let them paint that picture for you. And then I even just keep continuing to ask questions like, wow, like what would you what do you need from me? Like, what, what do you think would be helpful for you right now? You know, like sometimes we think of like, well, I'm the parent, so I'm here to fix it. So if you're feeling like that, then we should go get some ice cream and you know, whatever, right? Like maybe they have a different idea, like, Mm -hmm. but you know, and I think kids have a lot of insight that we don't really uh, give them credit for They're thinking in their heads and they're watching and listening and, and trying to figure stuff out. So let's, what, what are they coming to? Like what, let's dig a little deeper, get in there. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. And even for our young kids, they're really perceptive um, and, and thoughtful. So great advice. Erin, thank you. I so hope. Much. <laughs> I don't know. Oh yeah. And so I think we, you know, assume that we know our kids and he or she would never feel that way or something. And right. We don't, they are growing into little people all their own. Yeah. Their own, yeah. So. So thank you for sharing your story, Jay's story, your family's story. Of course. So thank you very, very, very much. Thanks for having me, Dr. Margaret. I know it was it took us a while to figure this out, but I'm right. really, really glad we've had this conversation. I know I got emotional in talking with Erin. She is a warm, loving, caring and obviously a person who is willing to be scrutinized by others in order to do what really is the honorable thing, and that is to try to determine what she learned, what we can learn from her son's death and her son's life. Thank you so much, Erin. Thank you all for being here. I'm always honored by the time you take to listen into self-work. You can reach me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com or leave me a speak pipe message. Again, thank you. Take very good care of yourself, of your loved ones, and your community. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.